0: You have to suck at something before you can be good at it. Welcome to the River of Suck podcast, episode four. I am your host, Andy Reiner. River of Suck is real talk about struggles with confidence, self-doubt, and becoming the USU. My guest today is Pacifica Summers, an ecologist doing postdoc research at University of Colorado Boulder. Hi, Pacifica, and thanks for joining me for this episode.
1: (laughs) Thanks for having me. I think this is a really cool podcast, and I'm really excited to be on it.
0: I'm excited to speak with you today because you're both a scientist and an avid outdoor adventurer. And you travel for your work to remote environments, and I can imagine that it's not always easy.
1: Yeah, that's true. There's a lot of logistics that you have to know to go to Antarctica and to plan your trip there and to plan your research so it's successful. And I would have had no idea had it not been for some good mentors. And even so, uh, we learned a lot of stuff the hard way.
0: You have a PhD. Yes. And you're now doing research postdoc, which means
1: post getting your doctorate. You don't get a job hired at a university to be a professor, or otherwise you run your own lab in most cases, right? When you graduate, there aren't that many jobs. There's other people who are more qualified. So you get hired by a professor. They need somebody to logistically do some of the work, to physically do some of the field work, some of the analysis, some of the writing. Um, And it's still a training position. So you're also getting mentored and taught by this lab. It's kind of like residency in medicine where they might already have their MD degree, but they do several years of training where they rotate around and work under different doctors. Postdoc is really similar in that sense. And um, it's a great chance to jump into a new field and suck at something new for a while (laughs) while you have somebody to teach you. And that's what I did.
0: And you're getting paid for doing what you love. Yes. Which is the dream. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing.
1: Yeah. Not that, like, every day is just, like, fun and glory, but it's satisfying and it's really cool.
0: What brought you to science in the first place?
1: I always liked solving problems. Uh, I guess there's a couple answers. I liked solving problems and asking questions, and I was encouraged in that as a kid, but also the way science is taught in school is very heavy on memorization and being able to regurgitate concepts and and vocabulary. And I was good at that. And I think that's the wrong reason to encourage kids in science. For me, fortunately, (laughs) it worked out that I like actually like doing real science, but that's really different than science class in school. And that's something I've tried to change through some of the teaching programs that I've helped to launch. to have teach people how to do science you know how to do science not just the products of science the vocabulary
0: how did you get to ecology and microorganisms
1: so i I knew i liked science and i wanted to go into science and i wanted i knew i liked being outdoors and in about sixth grade i read Jane goodall's book in the shadow of man and i thought okay being a field biologist is the way to get to do science and be outdoors and so I pursued field biology which was often ecology which is studying how organisms interact with their environment and each other Mm -hmm. and I think if I had taken a good class in geology earlier I could have been swayed to be a geologist instead because (laughs) they do cool field work too but as it turned out um, I really like biology so worked out. And I get to work with geologists now and, and collaborate with oh, them. Oh yeah, so.
0: they're down there in Antarctica too?
1: Yeah, there's there's a lot of geology down there. I was not interested in microbes originally because I was like, that's the science you do indoors. That's not oh. the science I want to do.
0: Okay, yeah. And so
1: I did my whole PhD doing both mathematical modeling, which can be done outdoors, um, and also field work on things that you have to go outside to count, like seedlings and small mice that are running away from you. Mm -hmm. And then uh, that was in Tucson. And as I was standing sideways to fit into the foot wide shade of a saguaro cactus at noon in the 115 degree heat. I was like, this sucks.
2: <laughs>
1: you know where I need to go next is like freaking Antarctica or something. And I actually had had thought of going to Antarctica years before when I saw internships advertised. Mm-hmm. And I started to think, you know what I'm going to try to do after graduate school is find a job where I can go to Antarctica. As it happened, my sister had moved to Boulder. So I came up to Colorado to ski and I spent a few extra days in town to talk to professors at CU. And just introduce myself, see what they had going on. Mm -hmm. Um, Definitely tried to get in touch with anyone who was working in Antarctica. And one of them was this really cool scientist named Diana Nemergut. She told me about this cool system of mud puddles on glaciers with microscopic things living in them that are perfect little test tubes for doing ecology. But they're in Antarctica, and they're tiny. And (laughs) I was, at the time, I was studying these... These grasses that live for 20 years and their effect on saguaro cactus and these Palo Verde trees that live for 200 years, probably, and mice that can live for probably more than one year. And I'm seeing this tiny little slice in all of their lives. All of my data would be one little slice of their lives, and then I have to model it to figure out what it means. And the idea of an ecosystem with tiny things whose generations might be days or weeks or months, where I could invade them and watch these processes the whole play cycle. out for many generations and see what yeah. happened in real life was really compelling.
0: Cool. So how long from when you conceived of Antarctica being a realistic possibility for you to then actually getting there? What, how long is that process?
1: It was probably four years or so, which is between the time when when I actually said, I'm going to start talking to people who work in Antarctica. Maybe they will hire me someday. And the time when I flew to Antarctica.
0: I think that's a pretty standard river of suck, actually. (laughs) Okay. Did you have any doors closed in your face in that process?
1: Certainly. I talked to a lot of people. Diana was the only one who was willing to give me a chance. And I had a lot of work to do to finish my doctorate research before I could go do that and take Mm -hmm. that chance. And that was a tough process.
0: So you actually kind of got a multiple rejections from other people who said no i don't think this would i can i don't think i can help you
1: uh, yeah i mean those weren't so much formal rejections as we have a nice conversation about some cool projects that are going on and they're like all right well good luck you know (laughs) there's you know there's no possibility there's only one person who said i'm writing a grant to go back there to work on those mud puddles do you want to work with me on that right
0: so it's maybe more like a dead end.
1: Yes, that's a good way to think of it. <laughs> and then the, the can I even finish this PhD, um, just mental mental battle of self-doubt in pushing through some of those difficult skills in that river of suck that took a while, too. I think there was a, definitely a period there where every day just wondering can I do this while I ever finish this and when I say a period there I mean years <laughs> <laughs> you know six years or so I was trying to do things that I wasn't always good at and sometimes I found ways around them sometimes I found collaborators to help sometimes I pushed through and had to learn things that were just hard to learn and just took a lot of work
0: do you feel like any of that was ever have you heard of imposter syndrome it's where yes. people yeah yeah
1: Uh, certainly, I think at first, and then later, (laughs) I don't know how much, later as I just got got up to just me against the work, it was less of an imposter syndrome, and me, uh, and more of a, uh, more of just actually not being sure that I could actually complete what I was setting out to complete. (laughs) Um, certainly, I've battled a lot more imposter syndrome since coming to Colorado, because I I got my PhD, and then I started this postdoc. And I I mentioned I jumped sort of sideways in fields. I moved from dealing with data regarding seedlings that I could count or mice that I could track to DNA extracted from a bunch of dirt that represents a community of microbes. There's a whole different, you know, detection biases and that kind of data. There's a whole different way of processing that data, different computer coding skills called bioinformatics for dealing with that kind of data. And I didn't know the first thing about that. And so (laughs) fortunately, I joined a lab group that was really supportive and collaborative. And the grad students taught me what I needed to know. And it's definitely humbling when you feel like I'm finally no longer a grad student. I'm the, the postdoc. I'm paid more now. And I don't know nearly as much as you guys about what we're doing now so can you please help me it's really <laughs> humbling and really hard and I was really fortunate to have good collaborators who were helpful uh, one one thing I've heard that I liked maybe I read this on Twitter somewhere somebody suggested dealing with imposter syndrome <laughs> by instead of uh, f- just feeling like down that everyone's gonna find out what a fraud you are think <laughs> man, I must be so good to have fooled them all some com- so completely and just try to spin it on its head and turn it into a confidence boost.
0: If any of our listeners haven't heard of imposter syndrome, how, how would you define it?
1: This feeling that I don't know why they accepted me to this program or hired me for this job or how I got here, but like they all clearly think I could do something that... I don't know that I can actually do and they're all going to find out that I'm not up to this task and I'm going to seem like such a fraud for for saying that I could do it
0: it's like a lack of believing in oneself that that you really belong there
1: yeah yeah but you, you do that you really you earn did that that you yeah belong there and, <laughs> and deserve that spot there
0: right but looking back you you did belong there yeah. Well you, well, you were on a path to belonging there. Right?
1: Yeah, I was on a path to belonging there. <laughs> well, and that's that's learning th- what I needed to to get that done.
0: Right. So I, I wonder if a lot of that problem is is from people w- wishing they were fully developed versions of themselves, but still having to have a job and do things <laughs> along the way that that actually get them to reaching those goals.
1: Yeah, basically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mentioned this really cool scientist that just it seemed like everyone she worked with and everything she did was, I mean, people just loved her. She's the one, Diana Nemergat, who gave me a chance to mm-hmm. do this postdoc that like, I was admittedly in some ways very unqualified for because I hadn't worked with DNA data yet. I had to learn it still. Sure. And um, I was super grateful to her for giving me that chance and super excited to work with her. And then she passed away from brain cancer. And, yeah, right as I was defending my Ph.D. and preparing to move to to join her in North Carolina, where she had moved by then. And uh, so I reached out to her collaborator on the, the project, who I'd never met. I'd just seen his name on an early version of the grant, uh, Steve Schmidt, and said, Hey, uh, I was going to go work with Diana on this project. Would you be willing to take over the project and head it up, and would you be willing to advise me as a postdoc and, like, still hire me as a postdoc for this? Right. And he said, I don't really want to because... You know, he'd, he'd been working with Diana, um, I think he was her graduate advisor, so he'd been working with her for okay. years, so he was really hit hard by losing her, and he was on sabbatical and he had a bunch of projects going on, um, but he said, you can come up to Boulder and we can talk about it, about options, and um, so I came up to Boulder and met his lab, and they let me stick around for a while, and I'm really grateful to Steve for adopting the project and adopting me into his lab, but that certainly... Uh, did nothing to ease my feelings of imposter syndrome and of really needing to earn a spot in this lab of microbial ecologists when i knew ecology but not microbes
0: <laughs> right but it took a leap of faith yeah to get here to, yeah. to, to to pursue that and so it turns out if you ask for things they might happen yeah. and if you don't you sit there wondering why nothing happens that from your goals well, <laughs> did you ask someone to help with them? <laughs> you yeah. Know? Yeah. Cool.
1: That actually um, it really reminds me of a conversation I had two days ago. I was working on this really hard new statistical technique. It's hard for me. Somebody else has figured it out and written some nice code in R to make it supposedly easy, but I haven't worked with this data format, so I'm trying to work out this statistical test that's new for me, and it's a difficult task, and I'm frustrated at how slow it's going. And a professor from down the hall comes in to wash some dishes after a lab event because their half of the building had their water turned off for the day because it's spring break and they didn't think people would be around. And um, and we were like, yeah, wash your dishes. So we're chatting. And I said, yeah, things are going slowly for me. Any suggestions on how to be more productive? And his response was, when things are going slowly, I try to work with somebody else you know, kind of like you were saying, ask, ask for help, but, yeah. or even just like, just get someone else involved in it. ups the motivation, it ups the, um, ideas going back and forth and the accountability and the teamwork and gets you more excited about the project. Right. <laughs> and
0: not only that, we were talking at dinner. That's actually how this, part of how this podcast came to happen is I've been thinking and speaking about these ideas for a long time. I wanted more of a conversation. I wanted I wanted to h- listen more.
2: Mm-hmm. So
0: here we are. <laughs> Let's talk about the River of Suck.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: the River of Suck is a super wide mythical river churning with whitewater rapids, rocks, and thought piranhas. We can imagine ourselves on one side as our present selves. Behind us is our comfort cave where we can retreat to do things that don't involve risk or growth. On the far side, we can see future versions of ourselves running around, doing the things we wish we could do today. You have to suck at something before you can be good at it. Only by diving in and swimming with the thought piranhas can we make it to the other side in agonizingly imperceptible small movements forward towards our impossible-seeming goals. How does one stay mentally strong through the struggle? How do you see the river of suck in your life, Pacifica, in science or in the outdoors?
1: Well, you've talked in previous episodes about there being infinite rivers of suck, That's right? right? As soon as you get across the shore of one, you can see another yeah. one that you want to cross. But the bigger issue for me, in some ways, is I feel like I crawl out of my little comfort cave and I don't it's a good thing this is a mythical river because I don't think this would like work from a hydraulics um, civil engineering perspective (laughs) but I'm surrounded by a lot of rivers
2: Mm -hmm. and
1: I feel like I'm constantly struggling to decide which one I want to swim across. Right. Um, and, like, which one I want to invest the energy in really getting across. I can see mm-hmm. distant shores in a lot of directions, which makes it sound like I'm on an island, but clearly I'm not because this is a river metaphor. So
0: Well, no, that, that's cool. I mean, an <laughs> island is a lonely place. I mean, if you're trying to cross <laughs> to the other side of the River of Suck and all, and you're just stuck on an island and all you can see is infinite ocean and you can't even see the distant land, like, whoa.
1: Right, right, <laughs> right. So, I mean, that's true both in in science, in my work, and also just in in life, right? Like, in, like, life, like, in Colorado, we're lucky enough to have this is good climbing season at, like, Shelf Road, which is a limestone canyon a little south of here, as well as, mm-hmm. like, good climbing season in, like, the deserts of Utah. But it's also still good skiing season, just getting into spring, season, spring skiing. Oh, and yeah. Those are things that I love to do and skills that I'm always trying to improve at. And so, you know, oh, which way do I invest my time uh, this weekend kind of questions. Whereas also in science... There's, there are usually a lot of questions opening up in front of you. A lot of different skills you could learn and, to, and apply to, these, to answer these different questions. And choosing which rivers to swim is something that's, um, I guess, a really good problem to have. Mm-hmm. To have all those ideas of places you want to go.
0: But if everything requires effort to do it to the extent that you really want to... There's only it, so many
1: rivers you can a- swim and actually get somewhere.
0: So it's kind of about yeah. picking your battles. For wh- Which battles will you actually really be able to cross? Yeah. And yeah. Which, which will motivate you to continue swimming when things are really difficult? Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about mistakes. <laughs> mistakes and failure. From what I understand, people don't like making mistakes or failing And I think there's a lot of instances where people talk about, you don't know how many times I failed before I got where I was. But failure and mistakes mean different things to different people. So can experiments fail? What is failure? And like, what are mistakes to you?
1: (laughs) Okay. Well, I think on our previous episode, you talked about negative results. So that's an instance where... Um, an experiment maybe doesn't turn out like you thought or it gives you a sort of uninteresting result. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you're trying to make something happen and, oh, whatever I did then didn't make it happen. So, okay, that's, you know, in some ways that's a failure. So negative results are one thing where you, you test a hypothesis mm-hmm. and it turns out to be sort of the uninteresting answer. But <laughs> I think you can also have mistakes in experiments. They, they always tell you something, just not maybe what you hoped to know or, sh- or something interesting. So you can you can make a mistake in setting up your experiment where you put a certain amount of water on seeds so they germinate. Right. And you put the same amount of water on the seeds before and they germinated and you <laughs> learned something about how they grew with without an invasive grass, in my case. And then you try to repeat this experiment under slightly different conditions and the seeds don't even germinate. And what you learned was the seeds need a higher humidity to germinate at that amount of water. But that's not really that interesting of a result because, <laughs> like, you, I don't know, you didn't need to put that much effort in to figure that out when you had actually designed this experiment to learn how an invasive grass affected those seedlings after they germinated.
0: But you could, in theory, have spent a crazy amount of time getting to that negative result.
1: Yeah, spend a lot of effort to find out that plants need water. you're like, cool. (laughs) Well, I mean, you can say that's a negative result and that, you know, you learn something from every experiment. But boy, that that amount of effort was not worth the grand new insight I gained that plants need water.
0: (laughs) So then you're sort of back where you started. When I fail at like a practice thing and I have a goal and it still seems really far off, and I'm just not any closer that that's maybe a moment to reflect and think about where do I really want to go?
1: Yeah. And so one of the skills that I've learned that I need to use, and I, and I think this is sort of like one of those meta skills. <laughs> um, so this is like a meta river of the mythical rivers that I want to swim.
0: Okay. Yeah. Um,
1: is the learning how to strategically beta test things just to make sure that like, I didn't think the humidity was that different on this second experiment, but it turns out it was, and that it was different enough to make a difference. I need to remember to really include a lot of beta testing, so I just germinate a small number of those seeds instead of going to all the effort right. to set up that whole thing. Just do a few of them just to make sure seeds still germinate at the amount of water you thought they'd germinate at. So just learning how to beta test experiments every step of the way. So it's kind of this this meta skill of like learning how to, I don't know, stick my toe in the river and gauge how fast it's rushing to decide how much effort it will be to swim that and if I'll actually get there.
0: Do you dive in or do you walk in slowly, adjusting to the temperature?
1: Yeah. (laughs) One of the rivers I'm swimming is learning how to walk slowly into a river before deciding whether to dive in.
0: (laughs) So maybe diving right in isn't always the right idea. All right. Yeah. Well, I because also, you spend
1: so much effort getting back to the shore when that river doesn't work out.
0: Totally. I don't know. Sometimes there's little offshoot streams
1: mm. that diverge
0: from the main path. Yeah. And then they either go somewhere else and land you in a bunch of weeds. Yeah. Or they might come back and say you were on a raft. You might not know if you don't know the river that well, and if it's a mythical river, you don't know what the other. Is like. There's no way to see. You don't know if you're going to end up in the weeds or back or or way downstream, hoping everything's cool. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> How do you keep a good attitude when the science feels hopeless?
1: So one of one of the things I actually learned. In the last year or two as a postdoc, as I've, I've been investing more in productivity strategies. Just, Mm -hmm. I used to try to just work really hard and hope that would pay off.
0: So smarter working.
1: Yeah. Trying to work smarter. Um, and one of the things that I learned that comes out of actually extensive research on productivity is, and I forget how this is phrased in the original, (laughs) Um, Research, but you want to try to have a playful attitude towards whatever you're doing. Avoid emotional extremes, I believe is the way it was put. It was very sort of Zen or Jedi, but just try not to get too emotionally invested and have too many emotional extremes about your work, but keep a light, detached, playful mind, and then you never get sort of that anxiety blockage. Anxiety blockage. Anxiety blockage having that detachment helps to lessen the blow when things don't go like you hoped. Yeah. So when and when it just seems hopeless, and having perspective helps so doing things outside <laughs> of science like climbing. Right. One thing I take away from climbing is whenever I'm in a really scary talk like I'm nervous about a talk I'm going to give, or a test I'm going to take, or I just got a horribly mean rejection letter from a reviewer (laughs) for a manuscript, (laughs) I can be like, you know what? I'm not going to fall to my death right now as a result of this. It's really not a big deal.
0: Do you find any breakthroughs for your scientific thought when you're exercising?
1: I think taking time away from it and letting thoughts percolate in your subconscious Ooh. is important. I think just sometimes even not consciously thinking about it, but letting at least for me, I'm I'm pretty invested in and interested and excited about what I'm doing. Even when I'm not thinking about it consciously, it's kind of in my subconscious and an idea will come up out of nowhere. It's my subconscious working on it, I guess, as I'm outside doing something else. Huh well, maybe I could do it that way. Cool. I'll think about that when I get back and to work again. <laughs> sometimes it works. Sometimes it really doesn't. I think the hardest thing in science is really figuring out what the question is. You know, just like in okay. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Universe, the where, like, the answer was easy. The real, like, problem that, like, the whole Earth was built as a calculator to <laughs> figure out is, like, what's the question? Like, that's that's kind of science, where it's, like, The hardest part of it, in my opinion, is figuring out the right question to ask. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to write a grant proposal right now to keep working on microbes in Antarctica, keep studying them. And there are so many questions that I have, but trying to figure out how to frame them in one big overarching question that branches into many little sub-questions that lead to clear hypotheses is actually really difficult to crystallize for me Trying to be patient, letting my subconscious work on it, Mm -hmm. and then working with other people, talking it out with other people like we were talking about are the two ways I'm trying to approach it.
0: You're constantly having to advocate for yourself. To say, what I'm doing is important, and I need you to believe in me.
1: Yeah, I need you to give me money to do this. (laughs) To sequence this DNA.
0: (laughs) That sounds awesome. (laughs) But a lot of people won't advocate for themselves. Have you ever Mm -hmm. had trouble feeling like you should advocate for yourself or wondering why you're there
1: yeah all the time I
0: think it's helpful though to hear that even though it sounds externally like your story is constantly advocating for yourself that you still struggle with that element should you be doing it should I be asking this person am I bothering them oh yeah (laughs) You're, so you're struggling with that at the same time you're doing it. Yeah. Is that not the river of suck?
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's a good way to think about that. I'm hopefully getting better at it, even if it doesn't get less difficult or less painful sometimes.
0: There's a certain rush that I get. When it's successful, it's like almost like its own feeling that I'm striving for, like the feeling of success. I got a gig. Uh, These people are interested in what I do and they believe in what I have to say. And that's really cool. So that's much different from sitting there with a blank calendar going, oh, God. (laughs) <laughs> what am I going to do? So part of it is that actually that blank calendar motivates me because I don't actually have a choice. I can either go out and advocate for myself or I won't get as much money from jobs. And then I won't be able to pay rent and I won't be able to eat food and I won't be able to do the things I love to do, like go out and go skiing and, you know, be a person, not just a musician.
1: <laughs> well, that's the start of the Joseph Campbell hero's journey, right? Is the reluctant hero <laughs> is forced out of their comfort cave by some external factor before <laughs> descending into the river of suck and ultimately conquering it.
2: Yes.
0: <laughs> you can join the River of Suck swim team and gain instant access to bonus content for just $1 a month. For episode four, this includes extended interviews and outtakes, as well as MP3s of the music you've been hearing, which I composed and performed specifically for this episode. Joining the swim team at riverofsuck.com also gives you the opportunity to interact, leave comments, ask questions of future guests, and truly helps support the creation of this podcast. Let's talk about Antarctica.
1: I had a friend whose <laughs> dad was a geologist in Antarctica and he gave me a signed copy of his dad's book of <laughs> pictures and I I still have it like displayed on my mantle. It was kind of like this like this dream and motivational image for me. I spent three months there and then the next year two months and then this last year almost four months. So, and it, there's a, a really unique community of people who go there to do research and to support that research because it takes a lot of logistics to support it. And it's a unique and, and lovely and supportive community there.
0: I'm just trying to visualize this landscape, yeah. right? Yeah. So you're in the dirt. That's in this actually in valley
1: the, between mountains. The, just picture dry dirt, no plants.
0: Right. You're studying microbial ecosystems through... Cryo-holes.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: what does any of that mean?
1: Yeah. <laughs> so cryo hole is a fancy word for a mud puddle on a glacier. Oh. So I call them cryo-holes for short. So when, when this dirt on the glacier collects in a little divot, a little sun cup, it absorbs heat because it's dark colored. So just like wearing a black t-shirt on a sunny day is hotter than wearing a white t-shirt. Mm-hmm. Uh, that dark colored dirt will start to absorb sunlight, get warmer, and it melts the ice under it. So it melts in about a foot into the ice. Hmm. And that dirt that blew onto the glacier has bacteria in it. And not just bacteria, but bacteria that can do photosynthesis, like plants. Those are called cyanobacteria. Cool. And actual algae, and which is like pond scum, right? Yeah. And then microscopic animals called water bears, or tardigrade is their more technical name, um, and other microscopic animals called rotifers. And, um, so there's entire little food webs and ecosystems within this dirt, but they don't grow very much if they don't have water, because most of life on Earth needs water. That's why we're always looking for water in places like Mars to find out if there could be life. And so (laughs) once you have this dirt on ice and it starts melting in, now you have liquid water and these things can start to grow and you actually get quite the little biodigester with a lot of growth in these ecosystems.
0: This is a podcast and we don't have all that much visual content. (laughs) But if you have Google, Google image water bears.
1: <laughs> yeah, they're cool. They're really, cu- and you know what? They're cuter than they look on Google Image. Google oh, really? Image, they look kind of like a weird rhinoceros. <laughs> if you see them under the microscope, squirming around like a cat in a sunbeam, just like running in place as fast as they can and pr- going nowhere, it's like they're trying to swim across a river of suck and just like making <laughs> no progress. They're so much cuter than those electron microscopy photos. Like on they're trying Google.
0: really hard. This is yes. not working. Yes.
1: That's <laughs> always how they look. If you give the water bears some auger, then they don't just slip on the smooth glass. And then they walk like a little bear. They just, like, trundle along their... But on with eight their, legs. On eight legs. <laughs> it's so cute. And then they rear up on their back legs, and they, like, look around. And then they go back down and keep walking. I wanted to, to bring in something I actually could contribute to this project that I knew how to do, and that was count things and things you can count in in the cryo holes include water bears, (laughs) not much else. Yeah. Anyway, I wanted to do an experiment with tardigrades because that's how I know how to do ecology is to count things. If you are Googling tardigrades right now, which is another word for water bear, you're going to find a lot of articles about the indestructible tardigrade. And they, they always make it sound like really epic, like the indestructible tardigrade has survived five mass extinctions on Earth. I will say, though, um, in the spirit of getting across the River of Suck that i have come a long way mm-hmm. in being able to grow water bears in the lab, and that is in part due to that strategy we were talking about of get other people involved. Mm-hmm. got a couple of students involved um, who are undergraduate students that were helping out in the lab, um, and... They have done an amazing job at getting reproducing populations of tardigrades to grow in the fridge.
0: Why should anyone care about them?
1: Yeah. Um, okay. First of all, tardigrades are just cute. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but more, more specifically, um, the question that my research is trying to ask, it's not actually about just like what happens to tardigrades in mud puddles. <laughs> the question that my research is trying to ask is how random are bacterial ecosystems? So what we do well, is we create our own little mud puddles on the glacier, And we control what goes in, and then we can watch how they develop. We're testing some very specific hypotheses about the kinds of randomness Mm -hmm. in ecosystem development. And that's important to figure out because we have bacterial ecosystems that do a lot of things for us. They live inside us and help us digest our food. Mm -hmm. They live in the soils with our crops and help our crops grow. They live in the soils with our forests help our forests stay healthy and create lumber and not burn down and burn our houses down. Um, So we'd like to know how random ecosystems are, particularly bacterial ones, so that we can better manage them. And this is a really compelling system to be able to test some of those ideas because it's hard to do ethical experiments on people's guts.
0: What are some of the challenges of living down there and trying to get work done I guess both in a kind of the physical environment, but also as a team where yeah, I'm guessing you don't always get to choose the team. Yeah. And yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. No, that's um, a very relevant question to, I think a lot of teams down there. I certainly our first season, um, there was some disagreement. So there were three of us um, that spent the whole three months down there. And then a few other members of the team spent, some subset of that with us. And um, we were all from the same lab in Colorado. These are some of the lovely people who had taught me everything I know about how Mm -hmm. to work with DNA, but some of them had different ideas about uh, schedules, some (laughs) people being more night owls, some people being more um, early morning um, people, and that ended up resulting in situations where we had where some people's expectations of each other were not being said explicitly but were being held and they were being held to a so other people were being held to standards that you know and myself included is very guilty of being part of the situation there were frustrating dynamics going on where some people would be would kind of make a plan, someone else would come in later, have very good ideas that we wished we could have incorporated earlier, but it was incredibly frustrating to have them thrown in at the last minute after we had set everything up. Um, learning how to deal with that and how to talk about that with each other, talk through that and make, make a plan uh, was was a struggle, and we were all professional and all... Um, worked really hard at the communication and we all stayed engaged and had a really successful season. I I know there are situations with science teams, sometimes they make the news, sometimes they don't, um, (laughs) where that's not the case. (laughs) (laughs) Thinking about the ruining the book endings. News story. Did you see that oh, From last no. November? There, were no. two, there was a, a Russian station where a couple of guys who had been working together there for
0: sabotage the a data. long
1: time. No, they they had been working there for over a year together, I think. And one of them kept ruining the endings of books for the other, and the oh. other eventually stabbed him, and he had to be oh. evacuated. That was in in the news. That's all oh, I know oh, about only that.
0: Only in Antarctica, right?
1: <laughs> so that that became an instant. Uh, that happened, yeah, shortly before I went down to the ice this last time. So it it was (laughs) fresh in all of our minds to leave the endings of books alone for each other.
0: Fair enough. (laughs) So what about the harsh environment element? If you're stuck somewhere, does that wear on your mental state?
1: Yeah, sure. So at the field camp I work at, it's a pretty cush field camp as field camps go. Very glamping. We are helicopter-supported. So we ride in a helicopter from the uh, McMurdo Research Station that we base out of to our field camp. And that means that we are not severely weight-limited. I mean, to some degree, obviously, yes, but Mm -hmm. helicopters can carry a lot more than I would take on my back. So for somebody who likes backpacking, helicopter camping um, feels very luxurious. Okay. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And... Uh, so you have your tent and your tent, you know, you, you can have your own tent, which is really nice to be away from people there. If you spend the rest of your day so you them. You're not
0: in a building.
1: Correct. We're sleeping sleep. in tents there. Um, but then we have a cook hut. So at the, the camp I work at, many research teams use it and there's actually a semi-permanent uh, or like a temporary building structure there mm-hmm. that serves as a cook hut. And we actually have, like, a gas range stove in there and a table. And so it's really nice. Um, it's a nice place to hang out, get warm, make food. We um, also, you know, that's that's where everyone is. So if you're trying to get some work done, you're in there. <laughs> if you're playing cards and drinking, you're in there, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So that's one of the challenges of getting work done is when you want to get something done and other folks are getting rowdy um that can be distracting (laughs) headphones and earbuds one of the greatest inventions of all time for that kind of situation
0: sure how do you manage feelings because emotions can be really strong
1: yeah well um so one way like i mentioned earlier is to have outlets to get outside Mm -hmm. to have perspective um, another way is to be talking about it with people. So that's another reason I think this podcast is great, is talking about all these issues and feelings. And I have two friends from grad school that um, we email each other, at least weekly and sometimes daily, our to-do lists. Oh. This started out as we were our, we were accountability buddies for each other. <laughs> and we were um, sending each other to-do lists to help us organize our own time. This was our first steps towards managing our productivity and our problem with our to-do lists if we didn't share them with someone was not that we wouldn't try hard but that we would put so many things on them that we would feel like such utter failures when we accomplished only perhaps a realistic fraction of those things Mm -hmm. so the exercise of sending each other our to-do lists was actually more about passing the red face test of are you really going expecting to like do all that today (laughs) yeah um and but it's turned into so much more than just to-do list check-ins it's just constant check-ins more about like emotional and challenges that we're going on
0: so I mean it's kind of it's like a it's your part of your support team
1: yeah yeah I've heard people call it pure mentoring yeah before, but I think that's a really important way to help. Manage emotions and expectations when it is a way of getting of sharing to realize other people have failures and get rejected and get frustrated too
0: so i recently learned that what you started talking about there is actually verbal processing and i found out that i'm a verbal processor
1: (laughs) so this is great you're finally fulfilling your your destiny in podcasting well that's
0: what this is about the river of suck it's about talking about uncomfortable feelings. Well, do you think I'd be here if I didn't experience these un- uncomfortable feelings? Of course, I do. So that's why it's been so good to talk about it in public and with other people. So,
1: when I think the, the <laughs> thought piranhas that you talk about, yeah, those negative thoughts that just come up and bite you, mm-hmm. they seem at least for me really not to like light.
2: They, oh.
1: um, this is actually the secret to. to growing tardigrades in the lab, by the way, was to, like, put them in the dark refrigerator. And I feel like the thought piranhas also thrive in the darkness. Huh. And when I bring them out into the light of the day by emailing them to these two other scientists who are at a similar career stage who very much know what I'm going through because they're going through the same things, Yeah. the, the thought piranhas lose a lot of their teeth. Like, you just kind of look at it and you're like, wait, that's stupid. Like, that's, that's not a realistic, like fear or like, oh, it sounds so silly when I say that because of course I'm better than that. It gives you a lot of perspective.
0: So we need to send the thought piranhas to the dentist. Yeah. Ha- have their teeth extracted.
1: <laughs> yeah, or just shine a bright light on them and you know. I love that. that they just sort of wither.
0: <laughs> when you have thought water bears of course.
1: Yeah. What
0: are some examples of thought water bears or thought piranhas that show up in your head, you shine the light on and move on?
1: Things like, oh, this other person started graduate school at the same time as me, and they're already a professor with a tenure track job. So, comparing myself to other people, and this is similar to what I hear people talk about in the age of social media, where you only see other people's highlight reels and you're always comparing yourself to them. Mm -hmm. So, I try not to get sucked into that because um, it's not not productive, and academia is not a race. So it really doesn't matter what they're doing or what I'm doing. I'm doing me. Yeah. Um, but that's the kind of thought that can definitely drag at me and drag at my self-esteem.
0: And I'm sure you've heard of the Shackleton situation.
1: Yes. And I read the book Endurance mm-hmm. Yeah. several perspectives, accounts of that. I mean, that. you want to
0: talk about River of Suck? That was the whole continent of Suck.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That was 814 miles of ocean of suck to hit a one, a, like, one square mile island in the middle of that ocean yeah. with, like, two days of sun to judge their position with the sexton suck. Like, it's, a, it's I mean, that's one of the most inspiring stories. And um, I think Shackleton gets a lot of credit for his leadership skills. That's something that comes through in the book is the way he made such an effort to keep people occupied, to keep their morale up, to... Yuck make the obnoxious people like keep the obnoxious people close to him so that other people didn't have to deal with them
0: i became really interested in this story last summer oh cool and at my music camp rustic roots we used a composition class to write a song about the shackleton expedition leonard hussey was the ship's meteorologist but he was also a banjo player and many of the crew members credit his banjo playing to their continued grasp on sanity
1: cool that's really cool
0: (laughs) so perhaps that will be the musical feature towards the end of the podcast
2: sweet (laughs) adventure danger almost certain death but we'll be a hero if you ever make it back how could we know who'd pull us through? It was Leonard picking on the banjo. Hussy, say us a song to your banjo one more time. The only thing that pulled us through was Leonard picking on the banjo. by the ice. Shackleton pulled out his gun and shot the poor old cat. Each man save a pound or two, and Leonard bring your banjo. Play us a song. Load the sleds and mush the dogs or else we will be dead. We must get to solid ground and, Leonard, don't forget the banjo. Pussy, play us a song. Tune that banjo one more time. The only thing that pulled us through little room, not much food and not much drink, and we bail all day. Heading where we think there's land with a song from Leonard's banjo. Hussie, uh, play us a song, to that banjo one more time. The only thing that pulled us through was Leonard's Island seal and penguin lunch Sleeping bags are frozen And our coats are plates of ice Doubtful we can hold out long Oh, Leonard, pick up your banjo see, play us a song Tune that banjo one more time The only thing that pulled us through and five men sailed off in a boat. All our hopes are pinned on them, pray God she stays afloat. (laughs) Months and months we camped in cold, with nothing but the picking of the banjo. Uh, see play us a song, tune that banjo one more time. The only And now we know that we are going home. It was Leonard pulled us through, but I never want to hear another banjo. Us, see play us a song. Tune that banjo one more time. The only thing that pulled us through was...
0: you have a blog Mm -hmm. and we can follow your work in fact we can look at what you've been doing and we can follow you as you continue down your awesome path of investigating environments and ecosystems and microbes how do we stay in touch how do we see what what you're up to
1: uh, you can see what we have been up to. I say we, the field team that I've been working with mm-hmm. in Antarctica, at cryoholes.wordpress.com, and you can follow what I'm going to do in the future. If you go to pacifica summers.com, um, you can find my blog on there and a little like about my research, and hopefully that will keep getting updated as i do new cool things in the future
0: yeah and if you're not sure how to spell pacifica summers look at the title of this podcast (laughs) on your screen right now
1: yeah and i love going out and talking to groups in schools and doing you know getting getting out of the lab and talking to other people about what i do so if you are at a school or somewhere else and trying to find out more about how to connect with scientists, you can find out how to get in touch with me on there.
0: Cool. That's awesome.
1: Thanks for having me on your podcast.
0: Thanks it's for being... Cool. Yeah. Yay. Yeah. Thank you for being here. It's been really fun to hang out.
1: <laughs> it has been fun. <laughs> I don't usually get to talk about all the ways I've failed and messed up. I just... Talk about that time I went to Antarctica, and it was awesome. Oh, yeah. So it's it's cool to get to talk about the times when I sat in an underground lab with no cell phone service and <laughs> thought I was failing <laughs> every day <laughs> and failed until I didn't fail.
0: <laughs> Please consider giving a rating or reviewing River of Suck on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts tell your friends and help spread the word tell one friend tell a friend to tell a friend no one ever said crossing the river of suck would be easy or comfortable so i want to thank you for tuning in and giving it a chance the music in this episode was composed and performed by me andy reiner i'll be back with a new episode every month forever so make sure to subscribe wherever you listen Visit riverofsuck.com for all the latest updates on future episodes and guests. Become a member of the River of Suck swim team to support this podcast and access exclusive content, extended interviews, and high-quality downloads of music recorded for this podcast. My name is Andy Reiner. Till next time, keep swimming!